Hello, gardeners. I'm Louisa Pringle Cameron bringing you this week's The Charleston Gardener. episode and next week's episode, I'm going to give you a brief history of gardening in Charleston, South Carolina. The plant of the week is going to be a crinum lily, and next week's plant will be the salvias. This is a brief history of gardening in Charleston, South Carolina, and it was from a lecture that I gave to the Historic Charleston Foundation. It was a virtual lecture. I'll be giving it again live on June 11th, but it's sold out. So here we go. A group of storm-weary and determined Englishmen blew into our coast on a small ship from Barbados in 1670, sailed a few miles up the Ashley River, and founded Charlestown. It began as a palisaded settlement of 148 people on the west bank of the river, then was moved permanently to the peninsula by 1680 becoming one of only three North American cities enclosed by fortifications. The founders certainly had gardening on their minds, but their plants and seeds were mainly chosen for sustenance and for experimental cash crops. During the ten years, the little colony flourished and expanded within and without the palisades surrounding the original shelters. It is documented that the group experimented with cotton, indigo, grapevines, ginger roots, sugarcane, and cuttings from olive trees, melons, root vegetables, herbs, flax for making linen, corn, potatoes, and beans were grown along with roses, marigolds, and medicinal herbs. Rice cultivation came much later. The city's earliest recorded plat is dated 1706. There was very little room for pleasure gardens within the original walled city. A rare find drawn in 1707 by Joseph Purcell's surveyor, however, shows a walled-in formal pattern garden and an orchard at a large property on East Bay Street, which runs along the harbor. Not surprisingly, there are scant remaining brick-and-mortar outlines of early gardens, as Charleston has been ravaged by five great fires that destroyed entire neighborhoods, numerous hurricanes, a cyclone, and a tremendous earthquake in 1886. Charlestonians also suffered through two wars and two military occupations. Scientific literature describes the discovery of new North American plants by several early botanists and plant collectors. Mark Catesby, 1683 to 1749, was an English naturalist based in Charleston from 1772 who wrote a book on the flora and fauna of Carolina, Florida, and the Bahamas, which was the first published account of North American plants. A friend of Catesby's, John Bartram, 1699 to 1777, described by the Swede Carl Linnaeus, as the greatest natural botanist in the world, started the first botanic garden in the United States. This garden was planted near Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1728 
and can still be visited today. It was Carl Linnaeus, 1707-1778, who created the taxonomy system used globally to identify plants. Records show exports from Charleston in 1737 of oranges, nectarines, bananas, pomegranates, olives, and figs grown at Orange Grove Plantation, which was located just north of present-day Hampton Park on the west side of the peninsula. The Great Freeze of 1747 ended most of the citrus production around Charleston, but these fruits are still found as ornamentals in our gardens, and there are flourishing kiwi, strawberry, and blueberry farmers in the area. A treatise on Thomas and Elizabeth Lambole by Elise Pinckney and published by the Charleston Museum tells a great deal about the burgeoning of flower gardens in Charleston. Thomas Lambole had a lively correspondence with John Bartram of Philadelphia, and many crates of plants, cuttings, and seeds were exchanged throughout the years. The Lambole Garden on Lower King Street was described as the first of its kind in Charleston, richly stored with flowers and vegetables. In letters to Bartram, her husband remarks on her ranunculus and anemones and describes at length some of her careful gardening practices. The Lambold's pre-revolutionary circle also included Mrs. Henry Lawrence, who had a four-acre garden, quote, famous for its wide variety of plants from many parts of the world, end quote. John Watson, who came to Charleston from England as a gardener for the Lawrences, later established what is known as the first major commercial garden nursery in the colony. Dr. Alexander Garden, born in Scotland in 1730, came to Charleston in the 1750s and helped create the first smallpox vaccine in the city. He was immensely interested in plants and sent many specimens to Linnaeus. The lovely and fragrant gardenia is named for him. Robert Beverly, in his 1705 publication, History of the Present State of Virginia, lamented the lack of beautiful gardens in the country, stating that they haven't many gardens fit to bear that name. But not too many years later, South Carolinians were adapting the formal garden styles found extensively in Europe to the hot and humid landscape of the low country. Crowfield, a plantation north of Charleston, had an ambitious formal pleasure garden that was laid out in the 1730s by an unknown landscape architect. We know from an existing 20th century plan that there was at least one unusual feature, a Roman temple on a rise in the center of a fish pond. The house, which was completely destroyed by the earthquake of 1886, was centered in the garden with ponds on either side of its longest axes. In a landscape journal by co-authors Bauer and DeCuncio, they assert that the Governor's Palace Gardens in Colonial Williamsburg, which were completed by 1717, quote, set a standard for geometric designs that either balance each other or intrigue the eye with carefully planned variation, evidence suggesting that the elite used landscape design to announce and affirm their control over their resources, their knowledge, their taste, 
and their relationship to their origins, end quote. Historian Richard Bushman noted that middle-class Americans shared a similar attitude in the design of their smaller gardens, also exhibiting balance and symmetry. Work probably began in the late 1730s on the house at Middleton Place, which is on over 100 acres, roughly eight miles northwest of Charleston. The gardens came a bit later. Laid out in an elaborate style reminiscent of the Frenchman Le Nôtre, the design is more intimate than Versailles. The architect is unknown, but it is certain that Henry Middleton, born in 1717, died in 1784, had a heavy hand in the decision-making. André Michaud is reputed to have planted the first Camellia japonicas introduced to this area at Middleton Place, where one specimen still remains, and the present-day gardens contain thousands of camellias. Except for one flank, the house was burned to the ground by Union soldiers during the Civil War, and the gardens fell into neglect. Lovingly restored and still in the family, this oldest extant landscape garden in America is open to visitors year-round. A neighboring plantation, Magnolia, also has early origins. The first house on the property was constructed in the 1680s. It and a later house burned to the ground, the latter destroyed by Union marauders. The third house, as described by the owners, was a modest, pre-revolutionary summer home that was moved by barge along the river to its present site. It was at Magnolia that Dr. Drayton introduced the first azaleas from the Far East. According to an article in the Azalean magazine in 2000, some plants did make their way to Europe in the 18th and 19th centuries. They became the basis of the Belgian forcing azaleas, which were later introduced to America and became known as the Southern Indica Azaleas. Satsuki and Kurumi cultivars were not introduced until the 20th century. Dr. Drayton developed the gardens in the more natural style becoming so popular in England and opened them to the public in 1870. Today, there is an extensive collection of camellias, azaleas, and of course, magnolias. In addition, there is an Audubon swamp garden, a 16th century horticultural maze, a biblical garden, and a collection of tropical plants from Barbados. Elaborate and elegant gardens were being designed for some of the mansions on the Charleston Peninsula as well, the most notable being the garden of the Miles Bruton House built on Lower King Street circa 1765 where paisley-shaped formal beds with walks and paths were situated just behind the house. So, the 1700s were a time of great discovery in the plant world, and Charleston, South Carolina, was one of the centers of an intense interest in plants and gardening, even through the interruption of the American Revolution. André Michaud was a royal botanist appointed by King Louis XVI to find plants in America and Canada which could be of use to the French government. A widower, Michaud arrived on our shores in 1785 at the age of 39 and traveled extensively with his 15-year-old son. From his travels, which included the Far East, 
he shipped many crates of plants and thousands of seeds to France, while also introducing the crepe myrtle, the camellia, and the highly fragrant tea olive, Osmanthus fragrance, to this country. He is also credited with introducing ginkgo and mimosa trees, as well as Camellia sinensis, the tea plant, to our area. Camellia japonica is the ornamental camellia, and Camellia sinensis, although also ornamental, is the tea plant. Tea farms have a long history in South Carolina, but not until 1963 was tea successfully commercially produced for more than a few decades. The Charleston Tea Plantation continues to make its American Classic Tea brand today and is located on one of the sea islands close to Charleston. In 1787, Michaud established a botanical garden of 110 acres near what is now the Charleston International Airport, about 10 miles north of the old city and well above the neck of our peninsula. Here he propagated and planted and gathered plants for his king. He later returned to France and continued to travel and to collect specimens. After his death in 1802, his son sold the Charleston property. At the time Michaud was collecting, John Fraser, the English plant collector, had traveled to Newfoundland and had made his way south. He met Michaud and they did a bit of traveling and collecting together. Fraser encouraged and worked with Thomas Walter, a South Carolina botanist, on the manuscript for Flora Caroliniana, which was published in 1787. Over 1,000 plants were described in the book, including 200 new species and 30 new genera. The Hayward Washington House, now a museum house on Church Street, was built in 1772. Nineteen years later, George Washington stayed at the house for two weeks during his gala visit to Charleston. He undoubtedly strolled in the formal garden behind the house, which has been approximated and maintained by the Garden Club of Charleston. Not every household by far had the luxury of a kitchen garden. Broad Street was so named because the carts and drays bringing in food and supplies could easily turn around at the exchange building at the street's terminus. A real estate advertisement dated April 1786 listed lots for lease in the middle of the peninsula, described as follows. These lots are delightfully situated on a high and healthy spot and may be rendered as profitable by gardening as any lots near the city. So, Louisa, this is a ton of information. So before we go to the plan of the day, is there someplace where people can find this information besides this podcast? Well, yes, I am on Facebook and I have an Instagram account and I'll have it on the website when the website's a little more developed. It's pretty new. Also, you can go to Amazon.com, of course, and order one, two or three of my books. The last one, Charleston City of Gardens, has the most information in it and has a little more history in it than the first two, which are on the private gardens of Charleston. Perfect. Well, there you go. Well, let's get into the plant of the day. Well, I chose the crinum lily. Starting to bloom now, crinum lilies are old-fashioned southern plants that are often seen not only in graveyards and cemeteries, but also at abandoned home sites and cottage gardens in the south. And they've been around for over 200 years. They originated in Asia, Australia, 
and in areas of the Pacific and are found not only in the American South, but also in Southern California. I first knew of them as milk and wine lilies for the burgundy striping on the huge white trumpets. Friends gave me several of these pass-along beauties, but they were too large for our garden, and I have only one now in the front yard. One well-known southern gardener and author recommends thinking of them like shrubs when placing them. There are over 130 species of these lilies that are actually in the amaryllis family, and plant breeders have been working to develop dwarf types. The colors are in the red, white, and pink ranges, and the petals can be strappy or trumpet-like. Thank you again for listening, and I do hope that you will tune in to next week's episode of The Charleston Gardener, which is the second half of the history of gardening in Charleston. Thanks, as always, goes to my friend and producer, Daniel Patrick, whose own podcast is Mandolins and Beer. And, as Disraeli once said, how fair is a garden amid the trials and passions of existence. (laughs) ¶¶